How's it going, Matt? Uh, great. How are you, Jonathan? Good. Uh, this is a new episode of the Agony of Defeat podcast. I'm Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor in global studies at UNC. And I'm Matt Andrews. I'm a professor in the Department of History. I teach courses on sports and politics, as Jonathan does as well. That's right. And this week, the, the main topic... Uh, which we know our under-30 demographic may not be so excited about, is going to be baseball. Uh, The World Series kicks off this week. And it's the two legendary historic franchises, the Boston Red Sox and Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about the history of these franchises. I think it's interesting that they're meeting for the first time in, what, 102 years. Yeah, pretty amazing. They last met, and the only time they met was 1916. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Before we do that, we have a couple of sort of orders of business we want to take care of. The first is, uh, there's one issue we want to circle back to from the last episode. Uh, we're going to call this the after further review segment. Is that what we're calling it? Well, okay. No, least, it sounds good. Until we come up with okay. a, better, yep. a better idea. And uh, last time when we were talking about athletes and protest and how much power they could have Uh, if they actually ever exercised it. We use the example of the Maryland football team essentially telling the University of Maryland that they would not get on an airplane to go to Michigan for a game a few weeks ago unless the trustee who criticized their teammate, uh, who passed away in June, who died during practice, was not allowed to board the plane. Yeah, and that was um, a recent example, and a it was recent, a good example. A, a, good, a, fi- a fine a example. A fine example, <laughs> but there is a much better example out there. Right, a better example. And so what we thought about was what happened at the University of Missouri in the fall of 2015. Uh, there had been a number of racial incidents, graffiti, leaders on campus, including the student leader who was African-American, having the N-word shouted at him. And and all of this is happening in the larger context of of Ferguson. Post-Ferguson, that's right. Post-Ferguson, yeah. And so the president of the Missouri, the University of Missouri system, a guy named Tim Wolf, had come to campus for some series of events. Protesters had blocked his car. Uh, he refused to get out to address them. And the protesters, among other things, began to demand his resignation. That's right. And they they gathered in the main quad, and then they basically had, it was more more than a sit-in, it was a sleep-in, right? They were just occupying the main quad, calling for his resignation. Looked like it was going to be a stalemate. Right. And and then and then the 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 University of Missouri football team, uh, some members of which had already joined the protests, uh, said, "We this was in November, so I think there were I don't know four or five games maybe left in the right. season, uh, including a potential bowl game." Said if the pre- if Tim Wolf, the president, is not does not resign, we will cease any football activities for the remainder. Of the season, you know what happened two days later. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert! Yeah, he resigned. He resigned. Uh, I, when I was reading a little bit about that incident today, just to refresh my memory, I had forgotten uh, that the head coach of the team, Gary Pinkle, to his great credit, stood very firmly with his players. Right, uh, and they're just their right to protest, and that we're one family, and we do this together. And also had Missouri not played its game that coming weekend against BYU, 
it would have been forced to pay BYU $1 million. Wow, yeah. Um, which I had also forgot. You know, this is one of the reasons why uh, up until 1970, when you got a, a scholarship to, to play sports at a university, you got, I believe it was a, a, a four-year guarantee. That's right. And then in 1970, the NCA lowered it to one year. You're on a year-to-year right. basis. And the reason why they lowered it to one year is that coaches and athletic directors, they were getting tired of politically active students who were talking about boycotting games, who were raising fists at international competitions, um, you know, as a way to sort of rein right. those those players in. Right. They wanted more leverage over their labor force. Yeah, and it just goes to show you how much power college athletes really have if they act collectively. Yes, that's right. So that, that is our after further review Okay, so that's yes. segue number one. What's our yeah. next segue? Okay, um, so I was, uh, after our last podcast, I very eagerly went onto Facebook once Keaton and Olivia had done their magic and put the whole thing together, and I was going to start sharing it with the public. Right. And I'm trying to tag you, Matt, on Facebook. Uh, when I posted the podcast. Matt's not on Facebook anymore. Right. So I got very frustrated, uh, as I do when I interact with computers in general. I'm typing in various configurations of your name. <laughs> right. Nothing's coming up. I'm like, what the hell Matt, is going on? Matt Andrews, Andrew Matthews, <laughs> yeah, as many yeah, of my students call me. I, everything yeah. I could think of. Sure. Um, and then it occurred to me, oh, Matt is no longer on Facebook. Yeah, I got off Facebook um, about two or three months ago. And you know what I didn't do? You know what drives me crazy is when people get off Facebook, they make a grand proclamation that they're getting off Facebook. And I didn't want to do, that. Did I, do that. I just wanted to sort of, you know, shirk away into the night and um, let, you know, people like you figure it out all by yourself. Well done, by the way. <laughs> um, no, I got off Facebook for a number of reasons. Facebook no longer was a happy place in, in my life. Way too much politics. On, on Facebook. I got sort of down on the whole, the whole Russia thing um, when, I, when I learned about what Facebook was, was doing there. Uh, and it was just too much of a, of a time suck. I mean, I really never accomplished anything while you, on Facebook. You know, it's interesting, Matt, because another complaint I often hear from people about Facebook is kind of the opposite of what you're saying, which is I have a friend who calls it fake book. Because all people put on there are their great vacations and their wonderful kids and mm. this like highly selective oh, and no, I curated never did like that, view of how <laughs> how awesome their lives yeah, are. Yeah, no, you know. So anyway, well, well I'm sorry, and I, I suppose it, it was a problem when it came to publicizing the <laughs> podcast. But I am on Twitter, and You're I do publicize Twitter, it right, that way. So. Right. Um, and before we get to our topic, I want to say congratulations to you, by the way, being on CNN oh, um, for the thank second you. time in the your life. The second time. Now, I haven't seen it yet. With, with my old buddy, Fareed Zakaria. Very, yes. That's right. Yeah. Yes. How is Fareed? Fareed, is, Fareed told me uh, – Fareed is good. Fareed did he remember good. your name when he saw you? He did, actually, okay. although it's possible he was briefed <laughs> he by the producers. Had, so, he had you the know. script in front of him. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding myself about that. The nature of our relationship. But he's always, he, he is definitely a warm, nice guy. Well, the first time I watched it, I think the first thing I said to you was, you look really, really good. Right. And you said, it's the makeup, it's man. It's the makeup. Yeah. So did you look good this time as I well? I definitely look better than I normally do. And once again, it was because of the very nice foundation that they put on me okay. in the makeup room. Well, you look good now, by the way. So. <laughs> I just, I feel like if if I could really make this work, I would have a makeup person <laughs> uh, get me ready for every day. How are your makeup skills, Olivia? Fantastic. Fantastic. All right, there yeah, we go. We got yeah, to take her. Right. 
Right. So. So all right. So I've got a uh, a, a segue from what we were talking about last time to um, what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about baseball. And I was thinking about the national anthem in, in 1960, 1968, excuse me. And I was wondering, do you know about the Jose Feliciano national anthem at the World Series uh, in 68? Really? Only because of you, Matt. Okay. So, yeah. A little bit that I've yeah. told you. Yeah. There's this interesting moment. I think it's game five at the 1968 World Series. And uh, maybe we'll do a little parlor game here. I don't know if you know this, um, people, but Jonathan Weiler, you can tell him any year and he can tell you the two teams that were in the World Series. And this is going all the way back to 1903, so this is pretty impressive. So if I were to say 1968, you would say? I would say the Cardinal, the St. Louis Cardinals and the Detroit Tigers. Okay, that's exactly right. Just to, I want to keep this going a little bit. If I were to say 1939. 1939. Uh, the Yankees and the Reds, I Thing See, I have actually no idea. It might so have you been the Giants. Well, it was definitely the Yankees won the World Series that year because that was the fourth of four straight World Series that they had won. How about 1994? 1994. <laughs> Trick question. Trick question. There was a strike. Okay, yes, maybe we yes. can talk about that. Yeah, anyway, yeah, so yeah. in 68, it's game five of the World Series. Uh, it's at Tiger Stadium. And Ernie Harwell, the great announcer for the Detroit Tigers, recommended Jose Feliciano, the, the Puerto Rican uh, you know, American citizen, famous for Feliz Navidad, and he had covered the doors, light my fire that, that year. And he came he out. Was, he's sightless. Sightless. He, so right. he comes out with his seeing eye dog, actually, and this plays into the story a little bit, bit later. And he performs this haunting, gentle, beautiful, sort of soulful rendition and of the national slow, Nash- slow right. yeah, yeah, not not like drawn a, out a non-traditional and... national anthem. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention please. Please rise and join in the singing of our national anthem, which will be played by Merle Albee's band and will be sung by Jose Feliciano. the song ends, there's polite applause, but then you can hear in the background the boos just start cascading down. 
Um, and the reaction was was rough. Um, one sports reporter called it the star-spangled goof. Uh, another said, I thought the dog was singing and not the guy. You know, that's why Feliciano had a dog there. Veterans just back from Vietnam apparently watching the World Series in their hospital in, in Phoenix through, through their shoes at the TV. And the, the Tigers were inundated with negative calls, you know, 100 negative reactions for every positive reaction. And so, Jonathan, I think it's an interesting moment where, you know, what's going on? Why such a negative reaction in Tiger Stadium in Detroit? I think it's just baseball fans in 1968 saying, you know, enough of the counterculture, enough of countercultural politics, enough of protest. You can do that at Woodstock. That's next year. You can do that in Greenwich Village or in Berkeley or Madison, Wisconsin. But this is the World the, Series. The Democratic National Convention, which had taken place a few weeks before, That's where right. there was riding in the streets, and and so yeah. people were going to the ballpark looking for what for a for a safe space, right. you know, where right. they can escape all of the politics. Right. And so you bring that countercultural anthem in, right. and baseball fans lose their heads. And, and this is Richard Nixon's silent majority. Yeah, I guess right? so. Right? Yeah, 1968. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot going on yeah. in that yeah. year. Yeah, very interesting story. And and the Times piece that I I shared with you earlier uh, quoted Feliciano saying that I couldn't get played on American radio stations after that, which I was just blown away by. Shades of Smith and Carlos, Shades of Exactly. But now then Feliciano... Don't mess with the anthem. That's right. Then Feliciano was invited back to, I think it was a 2012 NLCS game in San Francisco. And played, yeah. And played. That's right. It sounds like the same, the same rendition, same more version. or less. Yeah, yeah. To well, San Universal, Francisco in 2012 is right, not exactly. Detroit in 1968. So to universal yeah. praise and acclaim. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. What's the greatest anthem you've ever heard at a sporting event? Well, I you know when I was a kid, Pearl Bailey used to play national. <laughs> do you remember Pearl Bailey? <laughs> I'm afraid I do. Yeah. yeah. So Pearl Bailey used to play these incredibly, uh, these speaker destroying uh-huh. renditions of the national anthem. At, at Yankee Stadium? At Yankee Stadium, really? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be Marvin Gaye at the NBA All-Star game. Right. Come on, that's right. an absolute Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good one, yeah. yeah. Or, or maybe Fergie at the last NBA All-Star game. Okay, <laughs> or maybe not. not and definitely not uh, Roseanne Barr. <laughs> no, no, that was at a Padres uh, game. At a Padres game, yeah. 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 All right, let's talk a little bit about, about baseball. Oh, uh, here's my burning question about baseball before we get to yeah. some. Yeah, Does Chris Sale really have a belly button ring? Is that a true story? I was shocked to hear that. Is that a true story? Well, that's what he says. Yeah, but I'm not sure I... Believe you, you it. Think it's, I think uh, maybe he's he's well, he's joking he's, with us. He's covering up for something. So yeah. if you don't know the story, Chris Sale had a some sort of infection that was causing, or just some sort of abdominal problems that was causing him issues. And he, well, he missed a start. He missed a start. The American League. The, the, this is the Red Sox ace, who's Before six foot three and weighs like 150 pounds. If he has that, no yeah, weight to lose, yeah. and then he had the stomach issue. That's right. And he came back and he was talking to the press, and he said, "I got an infection in my belly." button from pulling my in and out my my belly button piercing i think he's messing with well now that this. you put it that way it it, it seems implausible what yeah. major league pitcher with a belly button first of all what major league pitcher has, has a, belly a belly button, button ring? ring and second of all what major league pitcher with a belly button ring would admit to having a belly button i ring? think that's a fair question yeah okay yeah. well anyway we got to get we'll, right, we'll so try to get to the bottom of this uh, if, if we haven't already okay yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah okay so we've got the world series beginning so let me say first uh, as a Yankees fan, 
a Dodgers-Red Sox matchup is not the most appealing matchup I could have hoped for. Yeah, and as uh, a Giants fan, um, well, I, right. I've had three World Series in the last six or you seven have. years, so I'm you okay. Have. I'm you, okay. It, You're okay as a Yankees I'm, I'm fan. A, no, I know no one ever wants to hear a Yankee fan complain about What I find most understand. interesting about myself, if yes. I may, <laughs> is that even though I'm a Giants fan, I'm not rooting against the Dodgers. I don't know what happened. I grew up loathing the Dodgers, hating the Dodgers. I'm proud to say I've been kicked out of, of Dodger Stadium. Um, when I was in college going to Dodgers and uh, Giants games. But I don't load the the Dodgers anymore. How do you feel about the Red Sox? Well, before we get to that, so one reason for that might be there's an incredible history between the Giants and the Dodgers of, I mean, some of the most famous brawls in Major League history. Juan Marichal and Johnny Roseboro. Juan and John Roseboro and Marichal, the Giants' great pitcher, taking a baseball bat to John Roseboro's head. Opening, opening his head up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, I, so I think one answer to the question in general is that kind of acrimony just seems less prevalent in sports nowadays. Yeah, I think Don't you think? I, I, I do, although not necessarily the fans are certainly acrimonious. The, the, the right. players don't. But, but the, players, the players aren't. No, no. They, yeah. These guys make way too much money to be right. mad at each other. And maybe that's part of it. I mean, when I was growing up, the Yankees, Red Sox, there was like a brawl on the field. It seemed like every other game. There's a yeah. classic fight in 1976. Greg Nettles runs into Carlton Fisk at home plate, right. and all hell breaks loose. Right. You know, and Bill Lee has his shoulder separated, trying yeah. to be peacemaker. And, the spaceman. You know, yeah. The spaceman. That's the kind of thing that I feel like was more normal. Yeah. Um, so, but to answer your question, I certainly don't root for the Red Sox, but there's not actually anybody on the team I dislike. Uh, their superstar, Mookie Betts, their fantastic right fielder. Yeah. He's just awesome. Yeah, he, he's got a, l- a little bit of Willie Mays in him, doesn't he? He does. He, 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 he does. can do it all. He can do it all and, and, and do it all. Actually, everything he does do incredibly well. Well, speaking of Willie Mays, like when I think of a Dodgers-Red Sox World Series, it's really hard for me not to think of this World Series in terms of each team's racial history. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, when you're telling the story of race in baseball and you're talking about segregation and desegregation and integration. In some ways, I mean, it's a story that begins with the Dodgers and ends with the Red Sox. That's right. You know, the Dodgers in 1945, they're the first team, Branch Rickey, to have the the courage or the foresight, however you want to describe it, to sign Jackie Robinson. He debuts, the first African-American major league player in the 20th century, debuts with the Dodgers in April of 1947. But what was the first major league team to have the opportunity to sign Jackie Robinson? It was the Boston Red Sox. You know, there's a famous story where um, I think it's Wendell Smith, the black sports writer, brings Jackie Robinson and two other players to Fenway Park. And they're having a tryout. And someone from the stands yells, get those, uses the N-word, get them off the field. And most people now think it was Tom Yockey, the owner of the Red Sox. Oh, interesting. He was the one who actually yelled it. Um, this is one of the reasons why. Have they gotten rid of? I was just going to ask you this question: Matt. Have they gotten rid of Yawkey Way? Yeah, well, they, of they were Park talking about getting about rid of renaming, renaming it, right? the street in front of Fenway Park is named after the longtime owner. But his yeah. his just awful racial past has yeah. come up, yeah. and they've talked about doing that. So the Red Sox could have been the first team 
to have a black player. Instead of the original sort of 16 teams, yep. they become the last team to sign right. a black player. Right, in 1959. That's right, they signed yeah. Elijah Pumpsy Green. Right. Um, so they could have had Jackie Robinson. They had Willie Mays on the hook. Their right. scout found Willie Mays play, playing for the Birmingham Black Barons. He had him all signed up and agreed to a $4,500 contract. He called Red Sox management. They said no. They weren't wow. interested in another black player. They could have had Jackie Robinson, Ted Williams, and Willie Mays. That would have been quite a threesome. That would have been quite a team. So it, what's interesting, Matt, about this, I mean, among the many things that's interesting about it is there is a way in which the Dodgers' decision to start signing black players was like the original version of Moneyball. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like finding, yeah. essentially, finding value, finding value, finding undervalued skills, or in yeah. this case, players. Yeah. Uh, and in the case of the Dodgers, so the Dodgers were a kind of laughingstock franchise for most of their history before the 1940s. Yeah. They, they were in the World Series in 1916, then in 1920, they didn't appear again until 1941. They right. were off in the last place. They signed Jackie Robinson in 1947, and then they start appearing in the World Series on a very regular basis. Yeah, they absolutely right? dominate the National Six League for the next Six times, I think, in the next years. decade, yeah. right, before they left Brooklyn, sure. um, including their first world title in 1955. And the Red Sox made a World Series in 1946 and didn't make another one until 1967. That's right. And so, people often say it's the curse of the Bambino, right? It goes all the way back to 1920 when their owner, Harry Frizee, sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $100,000. That's bunk. Right. It's not the curse of the Bambino. It's the curse of racism. I right. mean, when, when you're not right. willing to consider black baseball players in the late 40s and the 1950s, you're not going to win. I mean, although yeah. the Yankees somehow got away it, with it. It is true that the Yankees are are no shining light in this story. They were very late to... The first black player they signed was the great catcher Elston Howard in 1955, and they kept winning. But at least the Yankees could make the claim, we don't need to sign That's black right. players That's because right. we're winning. The That's Red Sox right. were They were, did not have awful, that excuse. And they did yeah. not even think about it. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I wanted to mention, Matt, about the Red Sox, uh -huh. and I guess this is going to be, it turns out this is going to be my agony of defeat slash complaint of the week. Okay. The, the Boston sports fan. Oh, can I, I'm, I'm on this bandwagon. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, all right, so let, let, me, let, me, let me quickly wet, lay out my brief. And of course, again, <laughs> okay. I'm a bitter Yankee and New York fan. I just watched the Giants last night, absolutely embarrassed themselves, the New York Giants, New York football Giants mm -hmm. um, on national television. So, you know. How are the Knicks doing? And the Knicks are, you know, <laughs> right. The Islanders, it's uh, the Mets, the Jets. It's, it's, oh, it's, poor you, New York sports it's, fan. It's, it's yeah. not a pretty picture. But the Boston sports for the past two decades has enjoyed an unprecedented run of success. Yeah. The Patriots have won five Super Bowls since 2001. Been in what, nine? They're, they're every year. Yeah, you every assume year. they're going to win. Sure, of course. Right? <clears throat> the Red Sox could win their fourth World Series in 14 years. Right. Um, the Celtics, who won a title 10 years ago, are absolutely a championship contender. They look very relevant. They, uh, and yet, in my opinion, Boston fans continue to act as if they're these scrappy underdogs oh. whose teams somehow manage against all the odds yeah. to be relevant and... 
Anyway, I, I, th- this sticks in my craw. Well, I think it's probably because for so long it was so difficult to be a Boston sports fan. And, and, and right. not a Celtics fan because they won all the time. Yeah, but, that's right. But, you know, the Celtics actually weren't Boston's team, um, especially when the Celtics go back to race in Boston when the Celtics were being led by an outspoken African-American player, Bill Russell. Right. Uh, Bostonians just did not latch on to that team in the way that they should have. Right. And this definitely has to do well, with Well, in race. fact, the Boston Bruins, and again, probably not coincidentally, were a much, much, much more popular team yeah. in Boston yes. in the 60s and 70s. The all-white Boston than, Bruins, than, where they than had the Celtics for, a, for, a, for a couple seconds. Right. But um, no, right. But it's the Red Sox. And you think about all of the heartbreak that, that Red Sox fans had. I mean, it begins with Ruth. It's the biggest blunder in American sports history, right. selling Babe Ruth right. to, right. to the right. New York Yankees. Right. And then if you think about all of the specific heartbreaks, the, the impossible dream in 1967, this team that seems to have all the momentum, and then they meet Bob Gibson in the World Series, yep. and they end up yep. losing. If you think about... What happened? What 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 year was it? You would know as a Yankees fan, Bucky Dent. Bucky, yeah, nineteen seventy eight. Nineteen seventy eight. When Dent hits that, um, and then Bill Buckner in nineteen eighty six. Right. And the list just goes on and on and on. So close. Yes, true. So many true. times. True. You know, as opposed to the Cubs, who were never ever close, never had right. a chance. The Red Sox were so close so many times, only to lose in the most heartbreaking ways. I think that just sticks in their DNA. That's right. So the Red Sox made the World Series in 1946, 1967, 1975, and 1986, and they lost in seven games all four times. All those World Series considered among the greatest series ever played. Yeah, 1975 considered as a fantastic, much the, right. the greatest one. Right. Right. Yeah. If you saw Goodwill Hunting, you know very well the Carlton Fisk game and. Right. So one thing, Matt, that you confessed to me recently, speaking of baseball, Mm -hmm. is that you just don't follow it very closely (laughs) anymore, which which I I felt a little bit of a sense of betrayal. You know, I was – the TV was on in my house last week. First of all, I just watch fewer sports than I – less sports than I used to. But I was – the TV was on and um, it was – I guess it was game four of the Red Sox-Astros, which I thought was, was going to be a great series. So much talent on the field. It ended up not being a t- terrific series, but there were some pretty good good games. And um, it was also the opening day of the NBA season, and so I was watching Celtics-Sixers. In fact, I was watching a documentary about basketball during commercial breaks of Celtic Sixers rather than actually going over and watching baseball. And I teach a course on baseball right. and right. American history. Right. I'm just young at heart, man. I'm yeah. like the kids. I was right? going to say that the, I think the, the the huge age difference between us really, between us? <laughs> yeah. really comes into play here. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's yeah. true. No, yeah. um, it's there are a lot of complaints out there about baseball. That baseball is no longer relevant. Uh, that baseball is no longer interesting. Personally, you know, as someone who studies the history of baseball, I think that's a bunch of garbage. I think baseball was always in a crisis. Right. You know, baseball right. was in a crisis right. in the 1890s, and then in 1919 with the Black Sox, mm-hmm. and then in a crisis during World War II. And then in a crisis during the 50s when the fans were all moving to the suburbs. And then 
when the ERA collectively in the league was minuscule mm-hmm. in, in 1968. And then 1994 when baseball went away because of the strike. And then the steroid era. And it's always in a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And yet more people in this country go and watch baseball every year than any other sport. Right. That's and right. it's if not even close. And we're talking about major leagues and minor leagues. Yes. Right. What is it? 150 million people? Every major league team, I can't do the math, but they play 162 games and yeah. they average 30,000 per game. Yeah, That's a lot of people. Right. It, it blows football and basketball right. away. Right. Yeah, so. so one thing that it, it is, is true about baseball, it's not one thing. There have been several changes in the way the game has p- been played in recent years. Uh, shifting, which has become incredibly common, means that fewer balls in play are hits. Yeah. Uh, for the first time ever this year, there were more strikeouts than there were hits. Uh, so the ball is just not in play as often. Um, walk strikeouts and home runs have become the coin of the round. Well, you can't legislate against the shift. If some people want you to can't. do it, that's an absurd uh, agree. suggestion. Agree. But you could you could lower the mound. You can juice the ball. You I mean, there are lots it. of ways to make baseball more offensive. Yeah. And I think major yeah. league, yeah, the, the major league powers that be will do that if they think they really have a problem. Right. So, but but I but I think I think one of the complaints that I'm at least somewhat sympathetic to and I do still watch baseball regularly and I love it. I actually think the level of athleticism on the field is absolutely unparalleled. I don't think baseball's ever been better than at, it at is at an all-time high. Yeah, right. than it is is now. Right. Yeah. Right. But it is true that the the ball is in play less than it used to be and I yeah. think that's it, it's not I, again, I don't think to your point Matt, it's not a crisis. As base, this is the other thing. I feel like lower the, the mound. Just lower you could the do mound. that. The the other thing is that people who cover the sport are the most likely to complain about it, and I just don't know if that's true of other sports. There's this like culture of hmm. baseball journalism yeah. to whine and complain well, about all that used to be so great about baseball and no longer is. You know, there's this great writer. It's Don DeLillo talking about baseball. No, excuse me. It's Lawrence Ritter. Um, Don DeLillo has his great book about baseball. But Lawrence Ritter has a, um, a book about baseball. And he has this great line. He says, what baseball has going for it are its yesterdays. You know, this is exactly what you and I are doing right now, right? We're just right. kind of going through right. the encyclopedia right. in our heads and talking about all of these great, great games and great players of years, years past. But there is no sport that is more nostalgic and that fans are more nostalgic for than baseball. I mean, I'm glad you think that baseball is at its sort of all-time peak because what people normally do is say, you know when baseball was great? You know, when I was seven years old, that's when baseball was great. Baseball was better in the 70s or the 50s or the 30s. People do that all the time. They do. It's a bunch of malarkey. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, very quickly, I was looking up the the 1916 World Series between the Red Sox and the Dodgers, and I learned some interesting things. Um, Actually, it wasn't the Dodgers. Do you know what the... what the Brooklyn team was going by in 1916. Was it the Superbas? That's what or? I would have thought. You know, yeah. they went by the Superbas for a while. Yeah. They were called the the Bridegrooms for a while right. because okay. so many of the players got, got married in one year. Was this the Robins? Yeah, very it good. Era? It's the Robins. Yeah. yeah. Named for their manager, Wilbert Robinson. Robinson uh-huh. and his uh-huh. Robins. So it was Red Sox, Robins. 
They, the Red Sox didn't play their games in Fenway Park. Okay. They played a Braves field because it held huh. 5,000 more people, 40,000 okay. instead of 35,000. The Robins' best player was, was Casey Stengel. And, of course, the Red Sox had a pretty good left-handed pitcher named Babe Ruth. That's right. In his, his one start, he gave up one run in the first inning, and then he ended up pitching 13 consecutive scoreless innings after that. Yeah, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Okay, uh, Matt, enjoyed it? Yeah, I hope we didn't bore people uh, with our trip down well, memory lane I, too I, much. I, I, I think we're going to find out. We, we got the baseball out of our system. Now we can go back to real sports. That's right. Yeah. So uh, I know our next episode, uh, we're going to record around Election Day. I think maybe even on Election Day uh, yeah, uh, or yes. the day before. Yeah, yes. so we'll talk. Let's do something on, on sports and electoral politics. Yeah, we, 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 we will try to find all relevant tie-ins. I've got some good two. Nixon stories. Okay. Yeah, make uh, you wait for them. Nixon, who himself was a Yankees fan. Oh, I didn't as know As my that. Mets fans' friends never tire of reminding Okay, me. very good. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Um, well, that's all for today. If you liked the podcast, uh, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And maybe even someday on something called Stitcher. And maybe someday on something called Stitcher. And, uh, and of course, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Not me. I'm not on Facebook. And once, it, and I'm out because he's on <laughs> Facebook because he thinks he's better than the rest <laughs> yeah, of us. Exactly right. And thanks, as always, to Keaton and Olivia, yes. our production team extraordinaire. And we'll see you next time.